Good morning. Hope you're doing well. You can have a Bible. You can open up to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We will be looking at probably one of the most familiar stories in the Old Testament you've ever heard. So Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6. While you're turning, just a couple things for you um, to make sure you know about. First, uh, on most every tabletop out in the info table, Grab some of these. Grab as many as you want. We've got plenty more to put out there. These are Easter invite cards for you to be able to invite people to Easter. So grab as many as you can. Hand them out. Uh, On the back, it's got our website and a little place, a little space for you to put, you know, your your phone number or anything you want to write. You know, hello, we love you, whatever you want. The thing is, our Easter egg hunt is this coming Saturday. So for all of you that are volunteering, every slot got filled up. So y'all are awesome. We appreciate it. I knew you were awesome anyway. But thank you for doing that. Um, for filling out the volunteers' uh, forms, but also uh, the Easter egg hunt is this coming Saturday, and so for all of you that have children, come to that. Uh, Two years ago, before the Rona, we had at least 100 people come to that, I think, so come out. It's going to be an awesome time. There's lunch and everything. Um, Even if you don't have kids, come out there and just hang out and, you know, eat and talk to everybody, so come be a part of that. It's going to be awesome. I am going to read all of chapter 6 to start out. So if you would, stand with me. We're going to read the entire chapter, and then after that, um, I'll pray. So chapter 6, verses 1 through 28, one of the most familiar stories that you've ever heard, likely, um, if you've been in the church for a long time. It pleased Darius to set um, over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would, would give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground or complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and prefects and satraps and counselors and governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house and where where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got on his knees three times and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by in agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Um, They came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes the petition three times a day, makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, um, then the king heard these. He was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And these men came by agreement to the king and to the, and said to the king, No, O king. 
that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion, uh, cast into the den of lions. The king answered and declared to Daniel, "May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you." And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and, and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be brought to him. And sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and and haste went to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was, as he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared. To Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the, uh, the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm uh, was found in him because he had trusted his God. Then the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the, the den, the lions uh, overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations' languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear uh, before the God of Daniel. He is for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. So Daniel prospered during the reign of King Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you've given us this morning. We pray, God, that we would... Um, not just read this as a good moral tale and dare to be a Daniel, although there certainly are good examples from Daniel that we can follow, but more than anything that you would use it to point us to Christ and that our hearts and minds um, would deeply desire to follow the King of Kings and see that only the King of Kings can deliver us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story, if you will remember, is primarily... Um, as Hermeneutics 101 teaches us, is written to Jewish exiles. The Jews had been in exile. And so why would Daniel write this story to Jews that are in exile? He's writing it because there is, after some 70 years, temptation to not live according to God's law anymore. And he wants them to see, as Daniel here lives according to God's law and continues to make sure that he's going to pray, as it says at the end of, I think it's verse 10, as he always had, um, as he had always previously done, it's written so that they would not be tempted to stray away from living for God, but then that they would continue. So the main point of the text, the main meaning of the text, as you're right, is to see that they should continue to live for God's law. Uh, they should continue to live for the Lord, even in the midst of exile, which means if that's what it meant for them, then we can say, then what does it mean for us? It means the same. Like, it doesn't mean anything that, for us that it doesn't mean for them. Stay um, uh, according to living to God's word in the midst of exile, stay according to living God's word in the midst of exile. We're in exile. We don't live in the, in the garden anymore with Adam and Eve. They were cast out because of sin. And so we've been exiled from the garden and we live here. Here we are as citizens of heaven. We're not there yet. And as we're here in Babylon, we need to also um, live for the Lord. And so for them, it shows them the necessity of making sure they live according to God's law. Uh, and they have to trust the Lord that he's going to deliver them. Now, chapter 6 parallels chapter 3. 
in chapter 3, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery pit or, you know, the, the big, huge fire pit. And then you've got uh, Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. And they, they, they have similarities. And so they parallel each other and they both show that you should trust the Lord to deliver you in times of trial. But they also have different things. Chapter 6 begins with Persia being in charge, not Babylon anymore. And so these new circumstances that have come to them shouldn't make you think, well, new circumstances now, God's going to take care of me and deliver me. I don't have to go through anything difficult. That's not the truth. New circumstances can show you that even though you have been delivered before, it doesn't necessarily mean that it guarantees an absence of any kind of future crises in your life. The Lord has delivered you once. You still might have to go through another crisis. And that's what Daniel is seeing here um, as he's going through this. So for us, uh, if that was the meaning of the text then, for us as we're looking at it, uh, we shouldn't be uh, tempted to just do whatever we want. Um, As they, the exiles, were being reinforced to make sure they live for the Lord, we also should make sure that we continually live for Christ today. And so this story reminds us of how great our God is, that we're to remain faithful to him, that we should trust him to deliver us as exiles in this particular fallen world that we're in, and that we are, um, we're not free from difficult times. We will have difficulties in our lives just like they will. So uh, as we look at this particular text, um, verses 1 through 28, I've got kind of have it in three different pieces. Now, there was one author, one commentator that I saw had like, you know, a, uh, a chiastic structure. And for him, the pinnacle was the declaration that Daniel's okay, right there in the middle where the king runs to him. is like, are you okay? And yes, I'm okay. I, I, I think that's a good way to say it's the pinnacle of the text. But I like the pinnacle of the text of chapter 6 to be the king's declaration at the end. And so I'm not using the chiastic structure here. I have my own little thing. Um, but basically I have three, I have three little things here uh, that I want to point out as we're going through. And so in the lion's den is the title of the text. But the little subtitle is living faithfully as exiles. That's what Israel needs to do um, as they're in exile uh, in Babylon. Now the Medo-Persian Empire, they still have to live faithfully. They're, they don't have the temple. They don't have everything around them anymore. Uh, they're being led by pagans instead of having a theocracy where, the, where God is their king. Um, and so they're in the middle of exile and have to live faithfully. And so do we. So we are, in a sense, uh, challenged to make sure that we're living faithfully as exiles. So what are the three things that we can see in this text that help us live faithfully? Number one is the world hates exiles that are faithful to God. That's what's going on here in verses 1 through 9. Or, sorry, 11. The world hates exiles that are faithful to God. Let me, let me make sure you see that this isn't just an Old Testament concept, but it's definitely something in the New Testament. John chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. John 15, 19. These are the words of Christ. The world hates those that are faithful to God. So it pleased Darius... Um, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel uh, was one. So you've basically got Darius and you've got these three presidents. You know, Daniel's one of the presidents and you've got these other two. And under each president is 120 
satraps or whatever, however you pronounce that word. So he's, he's pretty high up. As he had ascended in Babylon, once the Persians taken over, they saw how awesome he was. He, he is 80 years old. Uh, and so he has lots of power, lots of influence, lots of experience. He's a great guy. And so he's put into a pretty high place. And if you keep reading the text, uh, the king is actually going to put him over all three satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And so he was, he was pretty amazing. And that, that elevated power that he had caused them, of course, to hate him. You can see, and the king planned to set him with the king, the high officials, the satraps, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel. And so they, they couldn't stand him. Now, um, as I said last time, uh, last week, there's an echo. Can you all hear that echo? It's driving me crazy. It, it's making me like, feel like I have an inner ear disease here. So I don't know if somebody can fix that, but... It's really making me crazy. So um, the, uh, the Darius here um, is, all, he's the king here in, chap, in verse 1. So it's please Darius in verse 1. Now, I know last week, you're, if you heard me, I said King Darius and Cyrus is, is the same person. And then when you read verse 28 here, you're like, oh, it sounds like it's two, two different people. In verse 28, this Daniel prospered during the, the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. That, that and can also be read in the Hebrew as that is. There's a similar Hebrew construction in 1 Chronicles 5.24 where it talks about a king and it uses his name and it, and it says his name twice and they're two different names. And so I still think that Cyrus slash Darius, same person, um, it, it can be the same, exact same person. There's a possibility here that it just is the, the throne name is Cyrus, but he's the founder of the Persian Empire, which is, which is Darius. So I, I still don't... don't have my mind changed on that. I still think it's the same person. There are, you know, if you want to go read the commentaries, there's lots of ideas that it could be some other people. But anyway, back to the text. Please, King Darius, um, that he would put him over uh, as, as one of these three presidents. And, and he's pr- promoted to this high point, uh, and he loved Daniel very much, and he's distinguished above all the rest. Uh, and, and as you see this in verse 3, Daniel became distinguished above all. That should be a challenge for us as well. Whenever we see someone who is uh, in a different culture, in a massively pagan culture, living for the Lord in exile, and he's doing such a good job that he's being distinguished above all, all the rest. It, it's an example or an application for us to say, while we work here in whatever vocation we have, because Colossians 3 teaches us we do our work as unto the Lord, not our bosses, that we should be um, pursuing doing a good job in our in our vocations, whatever it is, and that we would be um, distinguished above all the rest uh, because we, we do our jobs for Christ. Somebody in our community group uh, by the name of Sean got a, uh, like a, uh, an award in January for doing such a good job. So keep up the good work, Sean. So um, he loves that I brought that out. So um, my point is, is Christians should do good jobs at their vocations because we do our work for the Lord. Um, and so we see this as we keep going and it says, um, he was distinguished above all because he had an excellent spirit in him. And so, as we get to here, and we see in the one which says, the world hates the exiles that are faithful to God. In verses 1 through 11, it's actually going to give us four particular w- pieces of wisdom as how to live as exiles. They're right there in all in verses 1 through 11. So, you know, under section 1, there's four little subpoints. This is the only time that has subpoints, um, But there are four nice little pieces of wisdom to how to live as exiles. So the first one is right there in verse 3 as we saw it. Because an excellent spirit was in him. An excellent spirit was in him. So the first piece of wisdom is to walk in the spirit. 
to walk in the Spirit. Uh, he says that he has an excellent Spirit in him. We saw that also in 5.12 and 5.14 last week. This continual description about how Daniel, and I think that when you ex- believe and trust in Christ, but in a sense still, this filling of the Spirit uh, that he lived according to the Spirit. And so we should be clear, um, this is the most difficult part of living um, uh, for Christ or for the Lord is when the world hates you. And it can be tempted to conform to patterns of the world. It can be contempting, really tempting to um, try to be more like them rather than live for our Lord Jesus. But here, because he's filled with the Spirit, he doesn't do that. And so uh, because of that, living faithfully and having this excellent spirit, you can see even rewards that he's going to, for faithfulness, he's going to be set over an entire thing. So first application for us whenever we're seeing is that we should walk according to the Spirit, or live according to the Spirit. And if you want to know what that means, just write this down. Go to, this week, John, the book of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and read those three particular chapters, and just note how many things, because this is where Jesus is doing teaching on the Holy Spirit, read and note how many things the Holy Spirit does for you out of John chapter 14, 15, and 16. I think you'll get up to about 12 to 15 things that the Holy Spirit does for you whenever he comes. This is when he says, it's, it's better that I leave because if I leave, then the Holy Spirit will come to you and he's going to, and he just lists out through those three chapters all of these things that the Holy Spirit does for you, like you know, leads you to truth, etc. So go do that this particular week. See all the things that it means to walk by the Spirit and how the Holy Spirit guides you. Um, so that's what we see here, that he has an excellent spirit in him. And then if you keep reading in verse 4, it said the king planted and set him over everything uh, because he was faithful. Because he was faithful. So the second thing that we can see here in living as exiles is to serve God faithfully. To serve God faithfully. Um, they tried to find a ground to get him kicked out of this position but like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, when descript, describing an elder, he was above reproach. Daniel was basically above reproach. They couldn't find anything. And this is pretty awesome. This is a man in his 80s, living faithfully unto God continually, day in and day out. I just want to make sure you remember uh, what, what we're dealing with when we talk about this man. So in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, when he was a child, basically a teenager, ripped out of his country, pulled away from his family, and he got over to this Babylon and basically, you know, live on your own here, conform to us, be like Babylon. It says in verse 8 of chapter 1, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself by, and then go on right there. So you've got a teenager, and just picture this, a teenager, all the way until 80, day in, And day out, if you read verse 10, it says he went and prayed as he always had three times a day. Now, three times a day isn't required. We're not, you know, have like a a little punch list that we have to make sure we pray three times a day. But just picture this, this 14-year-old, 15-year-old, day in, day out, going up to wherever he was living, to his living quarters, getting on his knees and praying to the Lord three times a day. For when he's 15, 16, 17, 18, all throughout his 20s, all throughout his 30s, all throughout his 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, day in, day out, wholly devoted unto the Lord. That's the kind of man that we're looking at here. Now, if you're like me, when you see that, you say, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of devoted follower to the Lord I want to be. 
His entire life is faithfully serving the Lord. So when we see because he was faithful, you don't need to just kind of like, oh yeah, he was faithful. Like stop and and think for a second. Oh yeah, this means, as it says in verse 10, he did it three times a day. And then at the very end, that last little phrase in verse 10, as he had done previously, this means his entire life from childhood to 80 was literally on and on and on of going through what we could call the monotony and mundane of being before the Lord, knowing his word and praying. That's what when we say serve God faithfully. So a way to live as exiles is not just walk in the spirit, but have a life dominated by what we would think is the, the overall entirety of our lives of the mundane of being in the word and prayer. You want to live God, for God faithfully here in exile, then this is the kind of life that we should have. It's said that few men finish well. And we've heard stories even recently about people that are in at least American Christianity after they die having these terribly scandalous lives, um, which should make us all the more determined to make sure we don't do that. Psalm Lebanon, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're full of sap and green, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteous in him. Eighty years, day in, day out, wholly devoted unto the Lord. This is the kind of faithfulness that we are being challenged. Let's, with Paul, at the end of our lives, whenever that comes, say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Living as exiles means being faithful. It also means following his word. Following his word. The only way that they could find Daniel to break a law was to make up a new law because he followed God's word so much they knew that he would pray and not pray to a a man. So let's make up a law that says you can't pray to anybody but a man instead of God. It's the only way they could catch him. So they have to follow, uh, they have to make up this new thing. So the only way they could do it is when it says in verse five, in verse five here, it says, Um, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it with the connection of the law of his God. He knew the law of the Lord. He knew the word of God. And so that shows us that we also should follow the word. If it's how they get us, may it be. They as in whoever starts attacking the church one day in North America, if that happens. I mean, there's an illustration of just a month ago, a man, a pastor in Canada who said, I'm going to preach the word no matter what. And they arrest him. He's in jail right now. He's in jail in Canada. He's in jail right now because he was preaching the word and he wouldn't stop preaching. That's the kind of faithfulness that Daniel has here. And so we see that compromise is the tool that the devil will use for Christianity. And it would have been so easy for Daniel to compromise. So easy. I mean, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of big, huge moving pieces here for him where he could have easily compromised. One, it's just 30 days. It's just 30 days. Just You can ride out 30 days. Two, the prophecy of Jeremiah 25 and 29 of being in exile in Babylon for 70 years was coming up. Like, I can just hold out. I'll be home soon. He's about, as it says in verse four, he's about to be over everybody. You're not just gonna be one of the three. You're gonna be over. There's so much like wiggle room for him to compromise. Like, I'm gonna be over everybody. This is just 30 days. The prophecy's coming. I, I should just ride this out. Ferguson says this. Temptations to compromise are never isolated incidents in our spiritual life, but a part of a larger strategy of Satan against us. It's the tool that Satan 
will use in our Christianity, compromise. And that's not what he's going to do. He's going to follow God's word and not compromise. And this is the challenge for us. And so they have this agreement, uh, as you see in verse 6, and all the high officials and satraps by agreement. This just means that they all came. uh, This this agreement can be translated thronging, kind of a weird little word. Uh, Thronging means like a great number of them, but the the little Hebrew kind of distinction in is that they were raging or, or conspiring, a conspiring throng, a, a big, huge amount of them uh, came to the king. And it, they're not coming, you know, all relaxed. They hate Daniel. And they're, they're coming all really, you know, mad. And it says, oh, king, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom are prefects and counselors are, are agreed. I can think of one guy that's not in agreement here. <laughs> His name's Daniel. He's, he's one of those that's not in agreement, but okay, whatever. Um, and it says uh, that, that no one should make a petition. And this make a petition for 30 days except to you, O king. And so there it is. And the king's like, yeah, I think I like that. Uh, establish the injunction and sign it over. Uh, and a thing about the law of the Medes and Persians is it literally, once it's signed in, it, Daniel the writer shows it to us a couple of times. It can't be broken. Even the king, it can't be broken. Once it's there, the Medes and Persian law is it's there, it's there. You can't do anything about it. And that's why the king couldn't not have to throw Daniel in the lion's den. And so in verse 9 it says, Therefore the king signed the document in the injunction. The king makes it law. He's just a pagan. And so he believed the same lie of Genesis chapter 3. You can be like God. I can be like God. Everybody has to pray to me. And so he's guilty of this same law that the serpent tells Adam and Eve. You can be like God here. And so um, Daniel here though is going to trust the Lord's word. So we need to believe that the promise of God's word as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3, uh, 16 and 17, it's profitable for teaching, it's profitable for reproof, it's profitable for correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be complete and equipped for every good work. This is what the Bible promises you that it will do if you would follow it. And so believe that promise. And if you want to live as exiles, walk in the Spirit, serve God faithfully, follow His Word. And lastly, you can see it right there, pray to God fervently in verses 10 and 11. What does Daniel do? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, Daniel knew it was law. It was only 30 days. That's not too long to have to go along to get along. And he knew that the prophecy of 70 years is coming up anyway. But what does he do? He stays faithful. It says, when he knew it had been signed, he went to his house where the windows were open, the open chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day And he prayed and gave thanks before his God, and there it is, as he had previously done. And so if we're going to uh, live as exiles here, we're going to have to also pray to God fervently. You put those four things together. (laughs) If we do those four things throughout our entire life, we will faithfully live for the Lord as exiles here. We will see people come to know Christ. We will fight sin in our lives amazingly. But this is what he does. He Uh, he prays to God faithfully. John Piper says that this open towards Jerusalem prayer is daring, defying, and disciplined prayer. It's daring because he wasn't allowed to. He's defying because he's saying, Darius' glory is not more important than God's glory. And it's disciplined because it's three times a day. It was a public statement about the glory of God over the glory of Darius. And, And Daniel was not going to compromise here. And it was, in a sense, 
um, some civil disobedience going on. Here's a law that says you can't worship God. I can't, I can't follow that law. Um, Danny Aiken says it this way. Daniel shows us that there are times as Christians to exercise civil disobedience. We should be careful. It's not just do the willy-nilly. Like, you have to be careful. But he does say there is times that we can exercise civil disobedience. Because Peter has said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. And for the devoted follower of King Jesus, Caesar will always lose to Christ when it comes to loyalty and obedience and worship. Always. And so for Daniel, prayers are outlawed, but he's going to do it anyway. He's going to do it anyway. If this were the case for you, if prayer was outlawed, would your life even change? Sinclair Ferguson says this on prayer being outlawed. Kind of lengthy. We may well ask ourselves in this context if it would make any substantial difference in our lives or in the lives of our church fellowship if prayer were banned for the next 30 days. Perhaps in many instances the answer would be both embarrassing and startling for prayer has become a neglected discipline and a forgotten art in many Christian churches. Its centrality and certainty none too obvious for years, a debate has raged across the United States concerning prayer in the public schools and interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that forbids involuntary prayer in these schools. Many combatants in this controversy are reminded of the days of Darius and Daniel. At the same time, we need to ask ourselves if this concern for Christian civil rights and religious freedom has diverted us even from a more crucial issue. Is it not strange that there appears to have been more vociferous protest about the denial of our right than there has been prophetic protest about the deadly prayerlessness in our churches and homes. Could it be that Satan does not normally encourage Darius-style legislation in the West because he has no need to do so? Only elsewhere where Christians have learned to pray like Daniel, where Christians have learned to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, has that tactic been found necessary? I'll say it this way right now. And it was retroactive for the last 30 days. How many of us would be in jail? How many of us would be in jail? We've got to be people of prayer. We have to be people of prayer remedy. We have to follow 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. We have to be praying people. Communing with the Lord. There's, there's three little notes in, in, in verses 10 and 11 on prayer that you can see. He gets down on his knees and goes towards Jerusalem. He didn't have to, but it shows reverence to God when we pray. It's not required that you get on your knees. It's not required that you face Jerusalem uh, or face a certain way, but it does show us in our first little note on prayer that he focuses on God and has a reverent attitude and posture towards God. And it helps us remember that we're his covenant people. And so um, it helps us remember that we're servants and he's the king. I'm the beggar at the throne of grace. He's the king. It's the throne of grace. And so yes, uh, the way you pray doesn't necessarily matter, but it's still a throne of grace. He's still the king. And so we show reverence to God when we pray. The real battle, one, one commentator said, the real battle didn't happen and the lions did. It happened in the... Not only does it show us that we should have reverence in prayer, but it shows that we should have discipline and regularity. Pray three times a day. Again, not required to pray three times a day. You can pray 35 times a day. You can pray 150 times a day. But it shows us that the, to be disciplined and regular in our prayer to God is good. The habit of prayer of this 80-year-old man is what sent him to prayer that day. That's what he had always done. 
And so it wasn't desperation that made him pray that day. It was consistency already. Consistency fed his courage. Discipline fed his faithfulness. So we should be reverent. We should look to God and have it regularly. But also it said that he prayed with thanksgiving unto God. We should have thanksgiving and intercession in our prayers. Um, We don't know the exact words that he prayed. I assume it was something like, hey, God, don't let the lions eat me. I don't want to die by lions. That'd be, that'd be terrible. I assume it was something along those lines. Um, but even if I die from lions, I'll be with you, Lord, and that's great. And I assume it's something like that. But there's a little bit of an outline. There's prayer, there's thanksgiving, and intercession. He, he, he thanked the Lord for being God and all that he's done, and then he interceded like, I don't want to die. And so we can at least take that simple outline and make petitions and supplications to the Lord. And so in the midst of verses 1 through 11, there's two messages of hope that's being given to Israel and therefore to us. Remember, the Bible's written to the first hearers and what it means to them is what it means to us. So God is telling them he gets favor sometimes uh, from captors and they should see this as a grace. Daniel has favor in the eyes of the Medo-Persian Empire and they should see this as a grace and they shouldn't despair. And so for us, we shouldn't despair the fact that we lived here right now and things aren't, you know, 100% great or the, the government doesn't love Christianity, we shouldn't despair about that. They're not going to. And this isn't our home. But also, another thing is that when God gives you favor among your captors that Daniel's going to see and they turn against you, you should still stay faithful to the, to the Lord even though it might be costly. You should still stay faithful. And for us, the same's true. Um, stay faithful to God. Because, as it says, the world hates us. And the way that they will see that we love the Lord is by staying faithful to the Lord. That's the first thing that we see in Daniel chapter 1. The world hates the exiles that are faithful to God. The next thing that we see starts in verse 12. You can go to number 2. The, the world's kings cannot ultimately be trusted to deliver. Only the king of kings can. What, I mean, as soon as they come up to him, you know, they kind of, Hey, king, didn't you say this law... You know, if anybody prays, then uh, they have to, you know, be thrown in the lion's den. Yeah, I did say that. Okay, well, that, that exile, the term of derision, little anti-Semitism here, that, that exile, Daniel, well, he did it. Uh, you can just, as you read the pages, you can see how um, the king's heart sinks here. And then he tries to do all he can, but he can't free Daniel. He can't free Daniel. Because, as we already said, the Medo-Persian Empire laws, once they're there, they can't be broken. Psalm 146, 3 through 4. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. That very day his plans perish. Don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust in country's leaders. Don't put your trust in small K kings. Put your trust in the king of kings. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. Rulers may be personally hostile to you, Rulers may not be personally hostile to you, but even if they favor you, dare, you dare not pin your hopes on them because they can prove as helpless as anyone else. And so this is a reoccurring theme that I've said throughout Daniel, but I, I want to make sure you hear it because it's super important. This is not our home. This is not our home. Don't put too much trust in our government to make things right for us because that's not the way it works. Um, Our hope is not our country's leaders, and our mission is not the same as our country's leaders. Their mission is to make our country better. That's nice. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel. 
Their mission is to make things better. And sure, I want a nice country. We all do. But that's not the church's mission. We don't bring the kingdom by making the country nicer. Jesus brings the kingdom in the second coming. We preach Christ crucified. That's our job. The aroma of death to those who are perishing, the aroma of life to those who are being saved. And so we don't confuse our mission. Sure, I want a good country. We all do. I love winning the Olympics and smashing everybody and being awesome at stuff and having the dream team, you know, in the 90s or whatever it was. Oh, that's fine. I love the United States. But at the same time, the United States mission is not the same as the church. The church's mission is to proclaim Christ. And if we are going to make sure we're doing one, we have to proclaim Christ. And so our hope isn't in our country's leaders. Our hope is in King Jesus. Our trust is in Christ and Christ alone. And so uh, they come to him in verse 12. Th- the, the whole throng comes. We want to get Daniel. We want to throw him away. And then uh, they say, Daniel, as it says in verse 13, pays no attention to you. Uh, he makes all of his petition three times a day to, to the Lord his God. And so when the king kind of hears this, you can just, in the page, you can hear the king's heart sink in verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver a king. If there's any uh, verse in the Bible that shows you that you can only put your hope in King Jesus and no other king, it's this. Darius is literally the only person in the Medo-Persian Empire that can do something. He's the king. He's the only person. And he can't do anything. It just shows you the frailty of humans. And humanly speaking, that they can do nothing. And the only hope that we have, and Daniel has, is the king of kings. And so he labored until the sun to rescue him. And these men came by agreement. And they said, no, O king, there's nothing that you can do. It is an ordinance. It is an ordinance. And then we get to uh, verse 16. And, and we see the king be able, like, he even says his, his utter hopelessness. Like, I can't do anything. That's why in verse 16b it says, may your God who you serve continually deliver you. I'm the king of the whole empire. I can't do anything. So we're going to see the utter hopelessness there. Now, it's interesting. The writer, the writer, this is really good literature. Really good literature. If you know anything about writing, he doesn't give anything away. He just gives you enough stuff, and you have to literally wait to the, the very end. He doesn't say, and then the Lord sent an angel to Daniel. and blah, blah. At verse 16 through verse 20, the focus shifts away from Daniel to the king, and the writer just makes you despair on the king. Like, here's what the king's doing, doing all this. Daniel's in the lion's den, and you're like, well, I don't know what's going to happen. He doesn't say, so the Lord sent an angel angel to Daniel and the king despaired but we know the king like we with the king find out the king runs up to the door and he's like Daniel are okay and then finally um and so in verse 16 through 20 the writer takes this this shift over to the king the king is distressed King Darius King Jesus is not distressed he's going to deliver he's going to deliver and so we have this shift where we hear the anguish of the king uh, not the anguish of Daniel, which would, be, which would be something interesting. Like the anguish of Daniel in this moment would be something I would be more interested in than the anguish of the king. He fasts. He doesn't even have any entertainment. Don't bring me in any entertainment for the night. I don't even want to have any entertainment. Um, as it says, no diversions were brought to him in 18. That means no entertainment. Um, and then we find out with the king if Daniel's delivered. So uh, verse 17, the stone is put on the mouth of the den, which is just... a. Pre, massively pre-Messianic depiction of the stone being covered, uh, just like the, the tomb was covered. Uh, we can see here 
I don't get the tomb, the, the stone, I mean, unless Daniel's just this a massively amazing, like, spry 80-year-old who's able to jump out of holes and, and ground. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case, but nevertheless, they put it on there. I think the point of it is to point us to Jesus. More on that later. He puts the king's sand, signet on it so it can't be tampered with. Ligon Duncan comments, he says, of course, this passage bears an uncanny resemblance to Matthew 26, 65, 66, where we read, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it secure as you know. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Just as Daniel was sealed in the lion's den, so also Christ was sealed in the tomb. And this was pretty, uh, a petty human ruler's way to seal the fate of both of these great servants of the Lord. And in both cases, that human uh, sealing led to a greater glory for God. When he brought Daniel out, out of the pit and he raised Christ out of the tomb. It's not surprising that the early church saw Daniel in the lion's den as a prefiguring of the resurrection of the Lord. For as Daniel was brought out of the den... He had been sealed by the official ring of those in power. So was the Lord raised from the tomb, which had been sealed by the official rings of power. More on that, the Christ connections in Daniel 6 are mind-blowing. Um, maybe you haven't read Daniel 6 in that particular way, but when we get to it, it's, it's all, the whole Bible is about Jesus, but it's, it's amazing in Daniel 6. The such familiar story uh, when you see the Christ connections are awesome. But what we see here is that Jesus is the only one that can be trusted to deliver. God is going to deliver him, so... At the break of day, the king ran out there. He ran in haste. You can just see how much he loves him. He came near, and Daniel cried out with a tone of anguish. He's like, King, are you going to be okay? Or Daniel, are you going to be okay? Have you been able uh, to be delivered by, by, your, by your Lord? And the Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they've not harmed me because I was found, don't miss this, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. He doesn't just deliver um, but Daniel out of the king, uh, out of this pit, but he delivers us also out of the pit. He doesn't just deliver Daniel from the lion. He delivers us from the prowling lion of Satan. And we are, if we're in Christ, can be delivered. The only person we can trust is Jesus to deliver us. So in a sense, this pit that he's in is the sin. And we can be delivered out of it just like Daniel was delivered by the king. We can be delivered by the king of kings. Now, that brings us to the last little part, and this is where it gets pretty awesome. So um, in verse 19, which I just read, at the break of day, the king ran out there. And we're going to see here that salvation belongs, number three, to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So king runs out there. Daniel said, I've been, I've been uh, freed by, by the Lord. And then it says in verse 20 that the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. Now, um, this particular section here, 19 through 28, is really broken down into three kind of sections. So you can go ahead and put that slide up there and you can see there's three little sections of this. Intervention, retribution, and then finally proclamation. So... um, when we get to verse 21, and Daniel makes this proclamation, this, this, the king intervenes, the Lord intervenes and saves him, and Daniel speaks in verse 21 to 22. This is the only time, interestingly enough, that there are actually like recorded words of Daniel in chapter 6. The only time he talks here, very short, uh, and gives all the answers needed. That God, and I think this angel is the incarnate Christ, the same as Daniel 3. Um, not much detail is given, but that's just my, my view uh, the Lord Dan, uh, God has come down and he has saved me. And the attribution of Daniel, the reason why he says that this happened is because he's done this because he is now. I don't want you to miss this. The Lord saves us in 
declares us in Christ blameless before him. It's the same declaration the New Testament gives us. That when we're in Christ, we are now blameless before him. Now, in the Old Testament with Daniel, by saying blameless, he's not saying that he's sinless. He's saying simply that he is faithfully following God. And he chose to honor God and believe the Lord when this law came that he was going to follow the Lord anyway. He didn't compromise and become like the culture. But it says, and if you keep going in verse 23, that no harm came to him because, at the very end of verse 23, because he had trusted in his God. Trust in faith, found blameless. Well, that sounds like the gospel. That sounds like the gospel. And it seems to be the message exactly that Hebrews Chapter 11, verse 33, and the hall of faith is picking up. In the hall of faith, he says, whenever these people had faith, God stopped the mouth of lions and delivered him. God intervenes, delivers Daniel from the mouth of lions because salvation belongs to our Lord. And the same thing's for us. When you put your trust and your faith in Jesus, declaration of blamelessness in Christ comes to us. There's so... So much gospel in this, it's amazing. God has done the same for us in the gospel. We were helpless, just like Daniel, in the pit of sin, no hope. The only hope for us was to die. That's the only thing that was gonna happen. God comes, that wasn't hope. God comes and intervenes for us. He sends his own son for us, who took the death for us. And now, by faith, we can be forgiven of our sin and declared blameless before him. Salvation belongs to our God. This is what has happened to us. And so the intervention for Daniel is the same way that the Lord 2,000 years ago literally entered into human history in the incarnation for us to save us. But we also see this retribution. I won't spend too much time on it. It is pretty gruesome. Verse 24, the king commanded that those men who maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast in the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. They all reached the bottom of the pit Lines overpowered them, broke them into pieces. Um, the whole throng got a taste of their own medicine, um, but also their wives and their children. They were shown no mercy, like Cobra Kai. You're like, why? Why? Karate Kid. Why? Why is that the case? Um, strike hard, strike first. No mercy, sir. Anyway, um, why, why is it that even the children, I mean, that's, that's rough. Well, in Hebrew law, the children would have been spared. But this is exile. This is Medo-Persian law. And there is no sparing of even the uh, innocence. Ferguson says, In a fallen, sinful world, there is a somber side to the salvation of God's people. The deliverance of Eve's seed is always accompanied by the bruising of the head of the serpent. Christ delivers those who are subject to a lifelong fear of death by destroying the one who had the power of death. The dark side to Daniel's deliverance and the judgment that falls on those who had sought to deliver the king, kingdom of God. They and their entire families, even the wives and children, were cast into the den of lions and immediately attacked and devoured. Herodotus informs us that such punishment of entire families was meted out according to the Persian law. It was a terrible end. Their gods were unable to deliver from the lions, whereas Daniel's God had delivered them. The one who was in Daniel was stronger than the one who was in the world. This is a brutal world, but it's, it is the way even for those now. If you're not in Christ, when you hear the gospel, we, we preach to those who are being saved. So death to those who are perishing, the aroma of life to those who are being saved. So it happens ultimately for all. If they don't convert, if they don't come to Christ, then the same Going down to the pit happens. 
But then we have this glorious declaration. And I want you to just make sure you feel um, the, the Great Commission language here. Feel the, the Revelation 5, Revelation 7, all tribes, tongues, and nations language here. Because that's all intentional. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and language that dwell on the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all the, my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Now we're back to that familiar pattern of Daniel. The end of every chapter, the king sees something amazing and he makes this great declaration about Yahweh. We didn't see it in five because of Belshazzar. He was pretty awful. But hey, we're back to that same Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar went on and now uh, Darius is picking up that same pattern, making this great declaration. And it's this all-encompassing great commission type language of Revelation 5, how all the nations are going to now uh, know who God is, that they all should tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. And then he says this, this amazing little statement here. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And in this, this pagan king tells us three pretty amazing things about God. The first two are, you know, vast, wide truths about God. The third one's very personal. The first thing that we see is that he's living, for he is the living God. Three attributes about God. The first two are broad. He's living. We serve a God that's always alive. Yes, Jesus died, then he rose, and you know where he is? He's still alive right now in heaven. We serve a living God, and it says it's enduring forever. That's the whole point of the statue and everything. Every earthly kingdom will perish. His kingdom lives forever. We serve a God that's living. We also serve a God that's enduring. His kingdom shall never be endured. His kingdom will always endure. These are big, broad things that we can know about, about God. But also, the third thing, very personal, an attribute of God is that he's saving. He's a saving God. Or, as it says, he delivers, he rescues, he saves. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He saved Daniel. This is the God that you serve. If you're in Christ, he's literally saved you. He saved you. But let's not miss the forest for the trees here. We can zoom in and just get the three attributes of God, but zoom back out and don't miss the forest for the trees here. These are not just the glorious attributes of God, but they're being said by a pagan king. They're being said by a pagan king that God used Daniel to see it. This is Psalm 67, 4 coming true. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon it. The nations are seeing the glory of God. Darius is seeing this. God used Daniel to spread his name among the nations, and now a pagan king is seeing it, saying, as it says, all people's nations and language and dwell on earth should know and that they should fear and tremble before Yahweh. That's pretty awesome. In this, the great commission language is being employed. It's the glorious eschatological missionary promise of Revelation 5 and 7. All nations and times and, and, and tribes and tongues will be what's going on here. And then it says Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius. And so he was, you know, continually prospering here. So let's finish with this. Um, how does Daniel 6 point us to Jesus? Now, I've already hinted towards some, but um, I don't want us to miss the glorious beauties, intentional glorious beauties that the writer, Daniel, is wanting us to see how he prefigures Christ. I say this each week, and I want to make sure we get this. Our instinct when we read the Old Testament should be, how can I see Jesus? 
That should be our instinct when we read the Old Testament. How can I see Jesus? Because Jesus tells us in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, talking to the Pharisees, because you think in them you have eternal life, following the law. But it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And he's referring to the Old Testament. So our instinct as we read the Old Testament should be, how can I see Jesus? Daniel points us to Christ. Oh man, this is great. The story of Daniel points us to Jesus because Daniel's story prefigures Christ in so many ways. As the satraps conspired against Daniel, so also did the Pharisees and the chief priests conspire against Jesus by stealth and had him arrested and killed. As the satraps could find no corruption in Daniel, the chief priests and Pharisees were looking for a testimony against Jesus but could find none. Daniel did not compromise his faithfulness to God. Jesus did not compromise when, faithful, when tempted to sin by the devil in the wilderness. Daniel was convicted by trickery. Jesus was convicted by trickery. Daniel was found guilty in breaking the law of the Medes and Persians, and Jesus was found guilty of transgressing the laws of the Jews. Daniel was arrested while praying. Jesus was arrested while praying. Darius tried unsuccessfully to save Daniel. Darius was unsuccessful to save Daniel. Pilate was unsuccessful to save Jesus. Daniel trusted in God to save Jesus trusted in his father and his will. Daniel descended into the pit. Jesus descended into the grave and laid in the tomb. Daniel's pit was covered with a large stone. Jesus' tomb was secured with a large stone. Darius found Daniel alive early in the morning. Mary Magdalene found the king of kings very early on the first day of the week. King Darius had Daniel lifted out of the pit. Jesus Christ, the king of kings, lifted himself out of the grave. Daniel was blameless before God. Jesus is the sinless son of God who is the perfect blameless sacrifice for our sin. Daniel arose from his pit only to die later. King Jesus arose from the grave and lives forever in heaven, highly exalted and living in heaven now, interceding for us at the right hand of God Father. Praise the king. The only one who saves is Jesus Christ. And so whenever we see these things in this story about here's what you should do, remember Jesus Christ on the cross has purchased for us all the things necessary to carry out these three things and everything more. He secured our salvation forever. The cross screens for us, not do, but it is done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that everything in your Bible points us to Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that as we um, hear the good news of Jesus this morning, that we would not feel scared or nervous because we feel like we don't measure up, because we don't. But because we have faith and trust in Christ, you have found us blameless now before you in Christ. All of our righteousness is found in Christ. And so I pray that we remember that you have pulled us out of the pit of sin and you have saved us because of Christ. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray that you would be with us now as we continue in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.